Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. So last week, when I ended up finishing the episode on Hulk, I said I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to be doing. I had an idea, and I mentioned that I might do it, and I decided I was going to go ahead and do it. So starting this week, and then for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the Dark Knight trilogy. The Batman trilogy that was made by Christopher Nolan starring Christian Bale. We're going to begin today with Batman Begins from 2005. Alright, so it was directed by Christopher Nolan, as I mentioned moments ago. Um, Christopher Nolan has won 11 Academy Awards at 36 nominations for the films that he has made, including Memento, Insomnia, The Prestige, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet, and he has an upcoming movie on the Oppenheimer Project, which for those of you who don't know, that's the Manhattan Project. That's the creation of the atomic bomb. The screenplay was written by Christopher Nolan, and the the major story elements itself was done by David S. Goyer. Now, I mentioned Goyer last week because he was involved somewhat in the Hulk, but David S. Goyer has written for Kickboxer 2, Dark City, The Blade series, Jumper, The Unborn, Man of Steel. And we're not going to hold this against him, but everybody gets everybody's entitled to a screw-up here and there. <laughs> Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. The music was done by Hans Zimmer, which I'm actually going to go a little bit more into detail on that here in a little while. And it was produced by Warner Brothers, Legendary Pictures, and Syncope. Legendary Pictures, of course, here most recently is known for producing the Godzilla series of movies that have come out. The fantastic Godzilla series of movies that have come out. It was released on May 31st in Tokyo for a special screening, and then June 15th throughout the U.S. and the rest of the world at large. Made on a budget of $150 million, it's pulled in $373.7 million at the box office, making it a success, if not a, in comparison to the two that would follow, a more minor success. To give you a brief rundown of what this movie is, first of all, I feel fairly confident saying that most of you have probably seen Batman Begins. If you have not, the basic idea is it, it tells Batman's origin and his journey to becoming Batman. It begins with him as a small child with his parents getting killed goes to him traveling the world to learn the various tricks of the trade he would need for what he did until he comes back to Gotham and eventually builds himself into Batman, only to have to deal with the consequences of his past actions while he was away. It was met with extremely high praise from most sources. Uh, it even garnered an Academy Award nomination, however it did not win it, and it is widely cited as one of the most influential films of the 2000s. The character of Bruce Wayne, also Batman, <laughs> was played by Christian Bale. Now, we talked about Christian Bale back when we did Reign of Fire, so I'm only going to give you a few of his here. He did Newsies. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't help that one. Little Woman, he provided a voice for Pocahontas. He was in Reign of Fire, of course. American Psycho, The Machinist. Prestige, 310 to Yuma, Ford versus Ferrari, and of course, Vice. Alfred Pennyworth, the butler, was played by Michael Caine. Now, Michael Caine has appeared in over 160 films in a career that has spanned over seven decades. I don't really have room or time to talk about everything that he's done, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. He was in Blindspot, Zulu, Alfie, the original Italian Job, the original Get Carter, the original The Island, uh, he was in A Muppet Christmas Carol, Secondhand Lions, which is one of my personal favorites. He was in Sleuth, Inception, The King Kingsman, Secret Service. 
And a little special shout out here for my good friend, Cal the Kaiju Guy, who is a massive fan of Jaws like I am. He's a bigger fan of Jaws, don't get me wrong. Uh, he appeared in Jaws The Revenge. That is an awful movie. It has its charm, but the roaring shark takes most people out of the moment. The character of Henry Ducard, also Rachel Ghoul in a dual role here, was Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, of course, is an Excalibur suspect, dark man. He played Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List. He was in Nell, Michael Collins. He has appeared in the Star Wars franchise as Qui-Gon Jinn. He was in Gangs of New York at the beginning of that. He is Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia series of movies. He's, of course, the main star of Taken. He was in the A-Team, Clash of the Titans, Wrath of the Titans, The Grey, and he also provided the voice for Ponyo's father in Ponyo. The character of Rachel Dawes was played by Katie Holmes in this movie, and we'll get to that in the second movie. Katie Holmes, of course, from movie-wise, has been in Phone Booth, Abandoned, The First Daughter, Thank You for Smoking, which she actually starred in that alongside Aaron Eckhart, who would go on to play Two-Face in The Dark Knight. She was in Mad Money, Jack and Jill, The Giver, and Ocean's 8, where she briefly played herself in a cameo. However, she is probably the most well-known for her run on Dawson's Creek as Joey Potter. She was in that show for the majority of it. The character of Sergeant, later in the movie Lieutenant, Jim Gordon, was played by Gary Oldman. Now, we talked about Gary Oldman when we did Lost in Space, but... Just to give you another quick rundown, he was in Sid and Nancy, JFK, Bram Stoker's Dracula, True Romance, Leon the Professional, The Fifth Element, Hannibal. He played Sirius Black in the Harry Potter franchise, Book of Eli. He was in Lawless and, of course, in Darkest Hour, where he played Winston Churchill. Dr. Jonathan Crane, also known as Scarecrow, was played by Killian Murphy. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. There are a lot of people that seem unfamiliar with Irish naming conventions, and they want to pronounce his name as Cillian. It is Killian. Just because it has a C does not mean it has that soft S sound to it. Killian Murphy was in Disco Pigs, 28 Days Later, Cold Mountain, Red Eye, Inception, Tron Legacy, In the Heart of the Sea, Dunkirk, and A Quiet Place Part 2. He also began his career as a musician. Carmine the Roman Falcone, who if you've read the comics is a pretty serious gangster character, Played by Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson, of course, has been in Paper Mask, In the Name of the Father, Sense and Sensibility, Ghost in the Darkness, which we talked about that earlier, myself and Cal. He was in The Full Monty. He was in Rush Hour, The Patriot, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Rock and Roller, Green Hornet, Fury, and most recently, Selma. I personally really like Tom Wilkinson. He plays that type of character to perfection. So when you see him playing a gangster, you can get the idea that not only can he be sophisticated... But he can be downright ruthless if he needs to. That was an excellent, excellent casting choice for that. The CEO of Wayne Enterprises at the beginning of the film is William Earl, played by Rutger Hauer. Of course, Rutger Hauer died in 2019. Now, Rutger Hauer had a very long career in Scandinavian films, but he's also been in some American films like The Hitcher, uh, Terror of the Isles, Sin City, Blade Runner, The Right. He was also in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. A couple of movies he was in in the Scandinavia side were Soldiers of Orange and Spetters. Now, I've actually seen Spetters. Spetters is actually really good. Lucius Fox, played by Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman was in Glory, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Unforgiven, Shawshank Redemption, Outbreak, Seven, Hard Rain, Nurse Betty, which he was in with Aaron Eckhart. <laughs> Along came a spider, The Sum of All Fears, Bruce Almighty, Unleashed, The Bucket List, Red, and many, 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 many more. I would be genuinely shocked if none of you knew who Morgan Freeman was. The man has one of the most imitatable voices of all time, even though 
Just because you can do a passable Morgan Freeman does not mean you should base your entire career on that. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. Um, most celebrity impressionists should stop. I get that you might be able to make a passable, you know, Stewie Griffin voice. That doesn't mean you should do the entire cast of Family Guy. Most of you are terrible. Stop it. Uh, there was a couple other actors in this that just had bit roles. Uh, Japanese icon Ken Watanabe, who was in, you know, Godzilla as Dr. Sarazawa, played the decoy Rachel Ghoul. Mark Boone Jr., who was in 30 Days of Night, played Arnold Flass, who was Jim Gordon's partner in year one. Linus Roche, who got a lot of attention, including a Golden Globe for Robert F. Kennedy. And Sarah Stewart, who was best known for Sugar Rush, played Thomas and Martha Wayne, respectively. Larry Holden, passed away in 2011, was in Memento. He played the, di the district attorney, Carl Finch. Colin McFarlane, who is best known for his run on Outlander, played Commissioner Gillian Loeb. Richard Brake, who was... He's been in a lot of things, and you'll recognize him by sight. The thing that I most associate him with is Hannibal Rising. <clears throat> he plays the character of Joe Chill. If you're familiar with Batman's mythology in any way, you know that in quite a few incarnations, Joe Chill is the mugger who kills his parents, and that's the route they went with here. Gerard Murphy, who was best known for McCallum, played corrupt Judge Faden. Tim Booth, who has only been in like two other movies, and other than that was is a frontman for the indie rock band James, plays Victor Zaz, who is a villain they must revisit soon. And, of course, Jack Gleason, who would go on to infamy, poor kid, as Joffrey Baratheon, played a child that Batman would encounter a couple of times. Now look, because I'm going to be covering a trilogy of movies here, <clears throat> I will still name who is playing who, but for the most part, the only ones who I will be giving additional film credits to on this are going to be the new actors. I don't want to drag through that every single time. Um, there is one exception, of course, being Rachel Dawes, because she was replaced in the sequel by Maggie Gyllenhaal, but we'll get to that here shortly. After the critical disaster of Batman Robin, which... If you go back through my episodes, you'll find myself and my friend Ian covering that movie. <laughs> and that was purely, purely vengeance on my end because he made me sit through Dragon Ball Evolution. <clears throat> A fifth film called Batman Unchained sat in development hell for several years. It would have involved Harley Quinn, who would have been the Joker's daughter, um, Scarecrow. It, just, it, it wasn't going to be that great. And ultimately plans for that were shelled. They had multiple abandoned reboot attempts over the next several years, including Batman Dark Knight, that's all one word, uh, as well as a Robin spinoff, which I believe the script for the Robin spinoff, titled Nightwing, uh, has actually been released. You can read it on Amazon. <clears throat> Eventually, in January 2003, Warner Brothers hired Christopher Nolan to direct a Batman feature. They hired Stephen, uh, David S. Goyer in March to help write it. Now... Christopher Nolan really wanted to delve into his origins, which at this point in time had not really been done on screen outside of, you know, flashes or brief moments. And even then, those origins were really just when his parents were killed. He wanted to root this film in humanity and realism, feeling that a grounded reality, which would be recognizable and contemporary to today, out of that atmosphere, a hero would appear more extraordinary than would normally be the case in a comic book character film. 
both Goyer and Nolan wanted the audience to not just care about Batman. They wanted the audience to be able to care about Bruce Wayne. To that end, Christopher Nolan felt that previous films, they were more spectacle, going for style rather than substance, as opposed to trying to highlight the drama and specifically, he would take inspiration for developing the character's growth in this off of Richard Donner's Superman. David Escobar wanted a complete and total film reboot. Um, he envisioned Batman as a bit of a romantic character and desired a sweeping Lawrence of Arabia type of film, something that could really suck you into everything. And when the studio mandated that, you know, okay, well, if you want to do this, this movie cannot be rated R, he was completely, totally fine with that. He had no problem with that because he desired to make the kind of Batman movie that he would have wanted to see when he was 11 years old. To that end, you can go back and watch this movie. There might be a little bit of blood, but by and large, almost none. Like, they do an excellent job of not really going down. For all the credit and all the talk about the Dark Knight trilogy being a dark series of Batman movies, you know, they're not as bad as they could be. I mean, Batman gets shot and stabbed at several points during the second movie, and you never see him bleeding, you know? In writing this story, both Goyer and Nolan would take quite a bit of inspiration from the comics around. Now, the reason that is important to note, and the reason that I wanted to make that distinction, is if you were to look, let's just use the MCU for example here. The MCU are Marvel movies that are not exactly based on the comics. They take characters from the comics, and they will take basic storylines. But then they will change things to suit how they want the movie to go. It is more fair to say that the MCU are movies that are drawn inspiration from Marvel Comics. They didn't really want to go that route, per se, with this. Like They knew they would have to do it to an extent, grounding the movie in realism. But to that end, they borrowed many elements from many different comics to build this story, including The Man Who Falls. And from that, they took, like, Bruce's travels around the world, you know, when he falls in the well at the beginning of the movie. They borrowed heavily from the long Halloween, using Carmine Falcone as the villain. You know, the the city's appearance, the somber seriousness of everything. To wit, they wanted to use Harvey Dent, but after several months of writing process and trying to get this off the ground... They realized they would not be able to do Dent's character justice in this film. So they decided to go with Rachel Dawes instead. A character that I believe they invented for the movie. Uh, they also took inspiration from Batman Year One. Which would explain, you know, they took Bruce Wayne's multi-year absence from Gotham. Gordon being a, a beat detective. Lieutenant, Lieutenant uh, Sergeant rather. The corrupt police force and the ultimate need for Batman. They decided they wanted to use Ra's al Ghul and Scarecrow for this movie because they hadn't been used in live action at this point in time. Yes, you'd see Ra's al Ghul, and yes, you'd see Scarecrow in the animated series. Side note, I cannot stand the fact that they call him Ra's al Ghul in this trilogy when his name has been Ra's since his first appearance. But it does give the movie its, a feel of its own kind of thing. One of the things that Nolan and Goyer decided against using was 
the idea that Batman was, you know, the genesis of the character came from Batman and his parents, Bruce and his parents, leaving the movie theater and getting apprehended by a mugger. They decided to go with an opera instead. Now, the reason they wanted to do that, as well as using the importance of bats to Bruce and why he became the way he became, was they felt that if they removed that element out of it, then it almost makes the idea of being a superhero original to Bruce in this movie. If he's not watching costume vigilantes on TV to get the idea, Nolan and Goyer felt that this could explain why there were no other superheroes that existed in this universe. A lot of people were wondering, you know, will Christian Bale ever reprise his role as Batman again? Despite the fact the man has said he probably wouldn't, even though he would enjoy it at times. Um, this Batman, if you look, and it's not even just a, oh, they base it on realism. If you look at everything that caused the creation of this Batman, you know, their superheroes don't exist in this universe. Which is what makes Batman so impactful and makes his existence so terrifying to the criminal underworld throughout the movies. I'm going to come back to them using Ra's al Ghul and Scarecrow shortly because now we're moving into the casting section. Now when it came time for Batman, also Bruce Wayne, Ion Bailey, Henry Cavill, Billy Crudup, Hugh Dancy, Jake Gyllenhaal, Joshua Jackson and David Boreanaz, TV's angel, Buffy the Vampire Slayer there, all had expressed interest in playing Bruce Wayne. You know, Christopher Nolan initially sought out Heath Ledger for the role. Who turned it down? Now, he turned it down because he didn't see himself playing a superhero or being in a superhero movie. Obviously, this would change. After Batman Begins came out, Heath Ledger really, really enjoyed the film and was like, okay, I really do want to be involved in this. And that's why when it came time for the Joker, Heath Ledger was whooped, near top of the list. In addition to that, Killian Murphy was very interested in the role as well, but he pivoted to Scarecrow after discussing it with Nolan, and we'll get back to that. Christian Bale had expressed interest in this film for several years now. Back when Darren Aronofsky was initially planning on writing a film for Batman, Bale is a big fan of Darren Aronofsky. Nolan would get him to sign on to this film September 11th of 2003. Now, there were some problems here. Christian Bale had lost a tremendous amount of weight for The Machinist. And there was some concern that he would not have the necessary physicality by the time they would begin filming. And they were worried that, you know, we might have to film this out of sequence and do Bruce Wayne stuff with him in a suit and digitally make him look a little bit bigger and then hope that he's big enough by the time Batman would come around. Um, amid that concern, he hired a personal trainer himself and he would gain... In his words, and I'm going to explain that in a moment, 100 pounds of muscle within about four to five months. When he showed up, he was actually substantially larger than required. So he had to lose about 30 pounds before filming would start, and he also would study the Wing, Wing Chun after he got to that size in order to not just help him shed that extra 30, but to help himself get into the physicality of this role. Now, the reason I said his words... As someone who has worked out the majority of my life, it is physically impossible to put on 100 pounds of lean muscle mass in a matter of months. Flat out impossible. Even with steroids, there's no way. I believe he put on 100 pounds because if you check his weight, he went from being like 127 pounds 
to 230 pounds by the time Batman would start, a lot of that is going to be water weight and a lot of that is going to be, you know, extraneous weight. Like it's, it's not solid muscle, but it looks like muscle because it made him look physically larger. That's, that's a little, just a, a pet peeve. I can't stand people say they put on 20 pounds of muscle in this amount of time, 30 pounds, but just, mm. Christopher Nolan liked the fact that Christian Bale had a, a light side and a dark side. Like he brought a lot of balance to that. And felt that while there could have been someone else who might have played a good Batman or a good Bruce, he felt that for what they were trying to do, Christian Bale was the best suited for both roles. This has spawned conversations and debates for years after the fact, where some people felt that Bale was a much better Bruce than he was a Batman. I don't think I've really met too many people that thought Bale was a better Batman than a Bruce. In the context of the films, the way they did those movies, you couldn't take... With the possible exception of Michael Keaton, you couldn't take any of the live-action Batman we've had and put him in that role. To help get ready for this role, Christian Bale would study graphic novels, feeling that prior films that had been done focused more on the villains and overplayed the villains in his mind while underusing Batman, underusing the psychology of the duality of being Bruce Wayne and Batman. And to that end, I don't disagree with him. If you watch the first Tim Burton Batman movie, they kind of give us a little bit of that. And then at the beginning of the second Tim Burton Batman movie, you see that Wayne is now sitting in a manner brooding by himself. They jump from that to that. And they didn't really give it. I liked what he did. I thought it was a good idea. So that, that was casting Batman. Alfred, Christopher Nolan originally offered this role to Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins declined the film as he didn't see himself doing another franchise. Well, considering he became Odin, I guess he was wrong. Uh, now, that being said, some of that is down to the fact that Anthony Hopkins is a fan of Greek mythology and Roman mythology, North mythology. Like, he loves all that stuff. So I, I, get, I can get that. Um, after that, Chris Nolan went to who was his second choice, Michael Caine. He went to his personal country home to offer him the role and deliver the script he described this role as you're essentially batman's godfather michael kane he felt could play the foster father element very well as well as lending some credence to this um you know the idea the backstory for alfred has always been you know that he's been a, way, a butler that has served Wayne's family for generations. Comics have added little bits here and there. Michael Caine also added to Alfred's backstory, saying that, you know, Alfred was a former special air serviceman. As while Thomas Wayne and them would have wanted a butler, they, they would have wanted something a little bit tougher than that. Now, for Ra's al Ghul, David S. Goyer personally considers Al Ghul to be Batman's best and most complex villain. He's, to that end, in some, if you look at him in certain light, he's not exactly a villain villain. He's, he's draconian, sure. And he has some similarities to terrorists like Bin Laden, but if you were to compare, if he had a contemporary in Marvel Comics, I would say it would probably be Victor Von Doom. Um, the actions of Ra's al Ghul are seen as villainous to those that they affect, but He's completely justified in what he does and feels that what they do is a necessary aspect of life. Gary Oldman was the first choice for Ra's al Ghul. I'll get to that in a moment. And after Gary was cast as Jim Gordon, 
Guy Pierce, who had worked with Nolan before, met with Nolan and discussed the role, but ultimately he agreed that he was probably too young for it. I think Guy Pierce would be an outstanding Ra's al Ghul, and now that he's getting older, hey, we might have something there. Viggo Mortensen was also considered, but it was felt that too many people would associate him as Aragorn, and they'd have some difficulty seeing him there. Liam Neeson signed on, because while he's normally a mentor or a tragic hero, in this movie, there would be a twist revealed that he was actually the villain. He felt this would shock moviegoers, and it would be a nice addition to his own personal film role. Rachel Dawes was written with uh, Katie Holmes in mind. There wasn't anybody else considered for her at that time. Now, as I said before, Gary Oldman was actually the first choice for Ra's al Ghul. The first choice for Jim Gordon, who actually initially signed on, was Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper dropped out of the film in order to spend more time with his family after suffering a, I don't want to say minor family tragedy, but it was a family tragedy that was not, it wasn't like an immediate family's death, but it was a member of his family who he personally was attached to that he felt, you know, this kind of, I want to spend time with my family at this point. To that end, Nolan felt that Oldman, who was normally a villain, would get a bit of a refreshing run as a heroic character. Uh, even by this point, he had appeared as Sirius Black in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, but for the majority of that movie, you think that Sirius Black is a villain. So, it was a, it was a good touch there. Most of his scenes were filmed in Britain, and, you know, Jim Gary Oldman, who is a master of dialect, said that, the character that I play and the way I play this, I am to embody the family themes, the courage, the compassion for this movie. Like, I am to be the audience's avatar for that semblance. It also helped that he heavily, with that little mustache, heavily resembles Jim Gordon from the Year One storyline. Now, when Christopher Nolan decided not to cast Killian Murphy as Batman... He offered him the Scarecrow instead because he had already had the idea of using that character as a villain. He told him, like, look, we can make this character a little less theatrical and, and make him more of, like, you know, psychotic, scientific, like a, a, like delving really into the, the fear toxin. As a, he's, a, he's a chemist. He's a smart, brilliant man. And Killian Murphy wanted to avoid the typical Scarecrow look, the massive you know, straw-filled hat, everything, which is just what they portrayed Scarecrow as in the animated series and in the comics at times. He's himself like, I'm not very physically imposing. Neither is Scarecrow. He should be more, you know, interested in manipulation and mental corruption, things like that. When it came to Carmine Falcone and Lucius Fox, Wilkinson and Morgan Freeman were the first last and only choices. The idea here, they wanted to go with an all-star cast to surround the character of Batman and give this movie that big feel of, oh my god, there's so many actors in this that have done such great movies that have been part of such cinematically historical things that it's going to be something that you can't miss. As is normally the case with Christopher Nolan films, he refused a second unit for filming. He doesn't like using second units because this way he feels that he can keep his vision consistent for the film. If he doesn't have to worry about a second unit filming something, oh, well, that doesn't totally match what we're doing right here. No, no, he has full control over that. 
Starting in March of 2004, they began in Iceland, which would be the stand-in for Bhutan. They built a village, the front doors to Raish's temple. They also had to make a little road for them to travel on. This was not easy. There was not really a whole lot of snow at this point in time on, the, on where they were filming. Also, they had wind moving in excess of 75 miles an hour at times. There were several shots they wanted to use a crane to get with the camera that they ultimately had to go with handhelds. Christopher Nolan would shoot most of the exterior for Gotham in London, New York, and parts of Chicago because he didn't like that both in Tim Burton's and to a much greater extent Joel Schumacher's, their Gotham cities don't look real. They don't look like they could possibly exist. He wanted this city to look real, recognizable, like you could see something that would make you think, I live in a big city, that looks like a corner mountain near where I live. That kind of thing. And also to that end, Christopher Nolan, being a childhood fan of the Superman movie, took direct inspiration from that and based most of the production in England at Shepperton Studios. At Shepperton, they would build a Batcave there that was 250 feet long, 120 feet wide, and 40 feet tall, and they installed 12 industrial pumps in order to make the waterfall scenes that you see in the Batcave. These pumps would push more than 14,000 gallons of water. They also used real cave walls to take molds for them to use as the actual cave. In January 2004, before they had begun filming, an airship hangar was rented by Warner Brothers, and by April of 2004, it had been converted into a 900-foot soundstage that would represent the Narrows and the feet of the track for the monorail to be on. Mentmore Towers stood in for Wayne Manor because they really liked, you know, the sweeping interiors, the white tile. Like, they felt this is this looks like a rich person's house. The National Institute for Medical Research in London was used for the exterior shots of Arkham Asylum, while St. Pancras Railway and the Abbey Mills pumping stations were used for the interiors of Arkham. The Senate House of Universal College of London was used for the courtrooms, and most of the scenes that involved action on the streets, including with the Tumblr, were filmed in Chicago. They actually got the city officials to agree to raise the Franklin Street Bridge at one point for their filming. Most of the time, they will not do that for filming, because that thing is supposed to be on a schedule. I imagine they probably paid quite a bit. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that, you know, he wanted to make the movie that he would have liked to see when he was 11, that they would have wanted to make this so that, you know, no bloodshed or anything. He wanted kids to be able to see it. No bloodshed or real gore was filmed. Filming began March 2004 and ended September 17th of 2004 as well, at which point they would start releasing, you know, teaser images, trailers, posters, things like that. Hans Zimmer was originally invited alone to do the music, but he asked if he could invite James Newton Howard as well because they had always wanted to collaborate together. They agreed to allow this, and ultimately this was a fantastic idea. They decided to take the musical themes of this film and base it around like a split personality aspect for Bruce and for Batman. They wanted some of the musical keys to coincide with some of the dramatic moments you see while some would coincide with the actions. They wanted to be distinct, but sound like they would come from the same movie. There are times in Batman and Bruce's scenes, for example, where you hear a young boy singing like a soprano vocals. Because the idea is, you know, he's he's stuck in time. He, he never moved on from being a child when his parents were killed at points. Um, it took him about 12 weeks to compose all the music for this. They wanted to avoid too much similarity to earlier films. 
and again, like I said a moment ago, they wanted to be able to humanize Batman at times with some of the more dramatic music. Because if you don't do that, if all you have is the action music and you take this movie at face value, something that many people have argued in the past is, you know, for all the mentally ill and uh, crazy people that Batman deals with, Batman's just as crazy as they are. And that's true. He would appear absolutely psychotic at this point. Ultimately, Hans Zimmer would take care of the action sequences for the music while Howard would do the dramatic scenes for the music. Uh, Christopher Nolan would use Blade Runner as inspiration for the design and effects that he would use. Uh, they built a model of Gotham City that fit the entirety of Nolan's garage in order to look at it. They wanted, you know, it needed to look like a large met modern metropolitan area. Like New York, Chicago, Tokyo. Tokyo, you know, the elevated freeways and the monorails, which is something that they did do in the Schumacher Batman films, but is a bit much. Also, the Narrows were based on what is now the demolished walled-in town of Kowloon in Hong Kong. The Tumblers took a lot of time and a lot of money. They combined elements from multiple vehicles and built six models at a one-twelfth scale within four months' time. Then 30 people would carve a full-size replica out of styrofoam, which took two months to do. After they built that replica out of foam, they then had to make a steel test frame. The steel test frame had to be able to stand up to the following standards. It had to be able to stand up to going over 100 miles an hour, 0 to 60 of which in 5 seconds. Make sharp corners without drifting off-road, and sustain a self-propelled launch upwards of 30 feet before it would land. The very first jump test, the front end collapsed, and it had to be completely rebuilt and ultimately redesigned. They would include a 5.7 liter Chevy V8 engine, the rear axle was replaced with a truck axle for better stability. And Hoosier Dirt Racing tires were used for the front tires while they would use four rear Swamp TSL tires. They also took a, the racing... Sus, bleh, sorry. The rear suspension system from the Baja racing truck, they used that to give this thing its suspension. All told, it took nine months and over $3 million to make these vehicles. They had four street-ready cars constructed, which were made out of 65 different panels in addition to everything else, and cost over $250,000 each, two of which were special. There was a flat version, which was used for close-ups, uh, when it would be propelled through the air, etc., and a jet version, where they put a legitimate jet engine that was fueled by six propane tanks on top of this thing. Due to the very poor visibility for drivers within these things, Six months of driving practice was used before they were allowed to film on the streets in Chicago. And even then, they had to be extremely careful. The interior of what you see in the Tumblr, like when you see Bruce in the Tumblr or when you see Bruce and Rachel in there, that's an immobile set. That is not connected to those vehicles at all. They also built a miniature with a motor and a remote control to, you know, use practical effects, which I, I personally can't point out a single moment where you see that. Yeah, so between the development, building the models, the, the workable models, everything, nine months, over $3 million. That's a lot of money for that kind of a thing. The Batsuit also was decided to be, you know, we want to build this stuff from scratch. We want it to look more flexible so the wearer could move, crawl, crouch, things like that. Um, they used a basic neoprene suit, and they would mold latex mold fittings around it for, like, the armored look that you see like on his shoulders and whatnot 
They also fitted this prior to Bale's physical training. So they would ultimately have to stretch it out and make it a little bit bigger, but not too much bigger because they didn't want it to appear like it was loose on him. They wanted it to appear like this fits him and it keeps him protected. They experimented with multiple different types of plastics, latexes, and different rubbers to try and get the appearance for it as well as the color for it. Ultimately, the black color that they were able to get with it would actually weaken the material the first couple of times. And it took them a, a, a few tries before they got a, a workable suit that they would like. Um, the cape was made out of parachute nylon that would also run an electric current through. Like, so you see that point in the movie where he's got the thing on and he's doing that and it runs like that, that whole thing. That's, that's genuine. That's really what they were using for that. Now, when it came time for the cowl, it had to be thin enough to allow motion for him to turn his head a little bit, but thick enough to avoid wrinkling. The mask part of the cowl also needed to appear menacing to show that angst that Batman and Bruce would have at this point in time. And in a lot of ways, you can look at some of the action, some of the way this suit is, and you can see that they borrowed some elements of it from the Michael Keaton Batman, the way he would have to turn part of his body in order to look at and turn his head, things like that. Now they would ultimately joke about this in the sequel, but for the most part, you know, the, the suit had to be original. And they even wanted the bat symbol, like everything. They didn't want it to... They didn't want the yellow in the middle. They didn't want it to look too stylized. They wanted it to look like this is something that a man with a lot of money can spend a lot of money designing. I also like the idea that they took aspects of this suit from his earlier training, like the clawed gauntlets on the sides of his arms... Okay, well, he was going to have those with the League of Shadows, and they're used to catch and deflect blades. That's perfect. The actors who were involved in the action scenes were trained in the Spanish Kisai fighting method, which is a self-defense training, which is, you know, it's, it's based on the study of natural instincts and movement. This movie and its two sequels that would follow are what ultimately popularize this self-defense mechanism. To that end, you don't really hear a whole lot about it nowadays, but it is a genuine form of self-defense. Sorry, I had to drink some water. As I said before, there was very little CGI used in this. Um, they would use scale models, stunt work. Now, there was, of course, going to have to be some digital work done. The Gotham City skyline... The, some of the exterior shots of Wayne Manor and the monorail and the bats that were seen in the movie in certain scenes were all digital. Look, you just can't release thousands of bats into a building like that. Even if rabies is not a concern because they've all been tested or whatever the case may be, you can't do it. It's not practical. It's not safe for the animals. It's not safe for you. <laughs> it, it makes sense that that would be the digital aspect of it. Uh, Christian Bale enjoyed his time on set. You know, he gets along very well with Christopher Nolan. Famously, he would have a minor uh, moment when he would do Terminator Salvation, but Bale is a character actor. He, he takes a moment to get into character. And Nolan, who is used to doing films like that, was able to keep the set very, very in line with what Christian Bale needed as an actor. Uh, most of the scenes that he would film with Gordon, again, were done in Britain because that's where Gary Oldman was at the time. 
Michael Caine would travel. Lucius, uh, sorry, not Lucius Fox. Morgan Freeman would travel if need be. Uh, like I said before, it had a special premiere uh, May 31st in Tokyo, but was released June 15th or 17th for Canada and the UK. Worldwide in over 3,850 theaters, 55 of which were IMAX theaters. It debuted at number one at the box office and was number one that weekend with a weekend take of $48 million or a five-day gross of $72.9 million. By the second week, it was still the number one, but it had a near, near 40% drop, pulling in only $28 million by its second week. Ultimately, it would pull in $205 million in the U.S. and Canada and $166.8 million elsewhere for that $371.8 million worldwide total. As of 2012, it was the fourth highest grossing Batman film behind Tim Burton's Batman, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. It has since been surpassed by The Batman with Robert Pattinson. Um, I don't think they're including Batman v Superman or Justice League in these numbers because those are not strictly Batman movies. It was ultimately the seventh highest grossing film of 2005. And at the time, they said it had a strong but unimpressive by the standards of the day, box office take. If you take that movie out of that bubble of the time it exists in and bring it to now, a superhero film that is made on a $150 million budget that pulls in $370 million, while it would not be considered a financial failure, it would be considered a financial disappointment. At this point in time, Batman theatrical movies had had such a herky-jerky eh, pass with box offices that this was considered a tremendous success. Again, it was critically widely praised. Uh, people liked the action, the dialogue. They felt the story was really well done. What minor complaints they, they had were over underusing a couple of characters, which they would kind of correct as the movies would go on, as well as the quote-unquote unrealistic ideas of Bruce Wayne returning after seven years away in better physical condition. And it's like, did you watch the movie? Or did you just watch to complain? It was nominated for many awards, including an Academy Award. And to me, probably the highest praise as far as these Batman movies go, Tim Burton felt that Nolan perfectly captured the spirit with the modern, darker comic elements for what he did with Batman Begins. The fact that Tim Burton's Batman, which is still considered by many people to be the best Batman movie, had that kind of a high praise for Christopher Nolan's Batman movie, to me, that's impressive, and that's a good sign in and of itself. Now, around now, normally on my episodes, I'll talk about, you know, the legacy of what this film may have left by or what long-term lasting impact it's going to have. That is actually going to be talked about after the third movie because you cannot start, you cannot talk about one without talking about the other two in that regard. So I will discuss that in a few weeks. However, I will give you some minor information on the impact this movie has had going forward. In 2020, Empire Magazine voted it one of the 100 greatest films of the 21st century. This actually started out the trend of darker retellings or outright rebooting backstories for movies. You get things like uh, James Bond getting a little bit of alternate takes. It would even affect other films. Uh, filmmakers, actors, producers, whatever you want to call them, that would use this film to describe their projects in the future include John Favreau, who would use this film to describe his work on Iron Man, Edward Norton for The Incredible Hulk, Robert Downey Jr. for Sherlock Holmes, Mark Webb with his Amazing Spider-Man, and you can see kind of elements of that with Andrew Garfield's run in that. 
Adam Wingard for Death Note, Todd Phillips with Joker, which is very important, and one of the ones that I kind of enjoyed, Gareth Edwards has used this movie to describe his inspiration in making Godzilla. I would love to know how. I really, truly would. Kevin Feige, head of MC, head of Marvel, all that, that everybody gives all kinds of credit to, called this movie, The Batman Begins, he said, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to superhero films. It is truly beyond debate here. Were it not for the success of Batman Begins and the hype that would follow for The Dark Knight following the death of Heath Ledger, because Dark Knight came out a couple months after Iron Man, but were it not for Batman Begins and for what was leading up for The Dark Knight, the MCU as we know it today may not exist the way it does. Personally, I think Marvel fans should thank Batman for that. I, personally, I love these movies, all three of them. Um, I actually had a conversation after seeing the Batman where the guy I was talking to felt that a lot of the action scenes in the Batman, he felt that they were some of the best fight scenes we'd gotten. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, he... I guess it's been, it had been a while since he had seen these movies because he specifically pointed out being better action scenes than moments in the Dark Knight trilogy. And I had to correct him. I'm like, dude, I don't know, man. If you... How, first of all, how do you forget about the fight that Batman has with Bane when that is a centric point of the Dark Knight Rises? There's also, you know... And, and even to that end, I took from that conversation and had another conversation with Cal about that. Cal the Kaiju guy. And even he was like, how long has it been since you've seen the Dark Knight trilogy? I said, it's admittedly been a few years since I've seen either of them. He's like, watch the Dark Knight again. I think you'll be kind of surprised at what kind of things happen in the movie. And I did. And I was like, you know what? You're not wrong. It had been several years since I've seen this. There were aspects of this movie that I forgot. So, while I liked the Batman just fine, um, I do not consider it my favorite Batman film. My favorite live-action Batman film is the one we were talking about next week, which will be the Dark Knight. Um... Although, the 1989 Tim Burton Batman is a close second to that. Animated-wise, Mask of the Phantasm, if you take, if you were to compare Mask of the Phantasm, if you take it out of the idea of it being an animated film, Mask of the Phantasm is probably the best Batman media released in the last 30 years. Um, Under the Red Hood is very good. The Dark Knight Returns is very good. But, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get off on a tangent a little bit here. Um, so, no, this was Batman Begins. Um, this is only the beginning of what I'm doing with Batman. No pun intended. Next week is going to be The Dark Knight. And next week, and for The Dark Knight Rises, Cal the Kaiju Guy will be joining me again. Uh, he would have joined me today, but when he asked me last night, he's like, when are you doing Batman Begins? I'd like, can I join? I said... I have to record it in the morning in order to get it out on time because this episode will drop at 1.30 on Sunday, which is today. I left it a little bit uh, behind, so that being said, I won't do that again. Inventory is finally, finally, finally over with at my job, and I'll be able to get back to a regular idea of note-taking and 
Because while I love Harry and the Andersons, originally it was not planned on me doing a rewind review on that movie at that time. I'm going to come back to the movie that I had planned for that week in the near future. Ugh. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you guys that those next two episodes on The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, there's probably going to be conversation about the film and discussion in those episodes. It won't just be how my normal episodes are because both myself and and Cal are big Batman fans. So, that being said, I hope you enjoyed today on Batman Begins. Next week, Dark Knight. I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.